0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, Natalie Foster from the Institute for the Future, co-founder of peers.org. I think the question we have
0: before us is, If work has been fractured out and can be tasked out differently where people are picking up pieces of a job instead of one person holding the job, then what does the social contract look like in that scenario?
1: Foster's going to talk with us about her vision for the future of work. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. This is Team Human. I'm psyched to have Natalie Foster with us today. She's really one of the leading thinkers about the future of work. You know, the the last year or so, I've been uh, really in the wake of having done this big book launch, this book, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus. And in there, I talk a lot about the future of work and whether the replacement of jobs by automation matters and exactly to whom and how do we deal with that. Um, to also looking at, you know, deeper issues of employee ownership of companies and this notion of platform cooperatives, the idea that workers can own the factories and means of production so that they can participate as stakeholders rather than just the shareholders having all authority over how a company works. And uh, the book actually got way more traction with business than I expected it to. I thought it would become the sort of rallying cry for young progressives and Bernie followers and occupiers. But the people who seemed the most interested in the solutions the book offered were the people running big companies. So one of the proposals I put in the book was for any company that's approaching its IPO, that means Putting its stock public, they should consider taking 10% of their shares and giving them to the workers, proportionate to how long the workers been uh, at the company. And lo and behold, Chabani Yogurt, of all companies, was about to have an IPO, and the CEO said, I'm going to do it. And he decided to give 10% of the shares of the company, which ended up coming out of his shares, to the employees before the IPO. And banks have been calling me. I put a lot of proposals for banks, such as banks mixing their regular lending with crowdfunding so that instead of a bank giving $100,000 to a restaurant in order for the restaurant to expand, maybe they'll give $50,000 of that loan in cash, provided the company can raise the other $50,000 doing local crowdfunding using an app or uh, an application of some kind that the bank would develop for the local community. So here's a way for banks, rather than just leveraging their monopoly on capital, here's a way for banks to enter into the financial expertise industry, which is really what they're going to have to do if they want to survive anyway. Even people at, at big, scary, uh, you know, can I use the word, evil companies, Um, even they seemed open to talking about some of these solutions. They're living in the same world we are. They can't just have 99% of the planet be unemployed. You know, I went to Uber, of all places, and that was really, to me, is like one of the scariest companies. Uber and Amazon are sort of the scariest of the digital monopolists out there. And the employees at Uber, uh, most of them had read the book and were really anxious to talk about how guaranteed minimum income might work. Now, yes, coming from them, it's a little bit cynical because they want guaranteed minimum income so that they're free to pay drivers an unlivable wage under the assumption that, well, government and guaranteed minimum income will somehow take up the slack. But still, they're looking at Oh my gosh, that's a deeply socialist style solution to a world with uh, abundant materials, but not enough jobs to justify getting a portion of those materials a lot of people, a lot of companies, particularly smaller companies run by boomers who want to retire, they were looking at how do they become platform cooperatives? How do they become employee owned? Because either their kids don't want to take over the companies or the owners see that there's more tax advantages in giving the company up. How can they make their employees the owners of the company? And the upshot of all this is people in the real world, business people are really willing to look at how can we reconfigure our economic landscape from extractive models to flow-based models? How do we stop making money by taking money off the table and storing it in share price? And instead, how do we optimize for the velocity of currency through our marketplace so that we keep earning a lot of money so that all our employees and customers are so wealthy that they're happy spending money time and time again now the easiest way to look at it is how instead of earning ten dollars once how can I earn one dollar ten times and that means earn a dollar spend a dollar earn a dollar spend a dollar your company is still earning the money but it's putting its revenues back into the business in the form of jobs and spending and community investment. These ideas have really been enabled by digital technology in in some real ways. You know, distributism, this idea that the workers own the means of production, you know, came from the popes of the late 18 and early 1900s. These are old ideas. They were just really hard to implement. How do the workers really own the factory and make decisions and all that? You know, we ended up with a much more kind of top-down traditional kind of broadcast media style corporatism in America and Europe. But digital technologies start opening these possibilities. First, through the example of platform monopolies. So something like Seamless, which is a uh, an app I know we've got it in New York. It's around most of the country. Most of the uh, sort of urban areas have it. Seamless is a one-stop app for you to order lunch into your office. So, All these restaurants, they all put their menus on Seamless and then you scroll through, you pick the restaurant you want, and through the app, you tell the restaurant, please bring this food. The restaurant still delivers it. The restaurant still makes the food. The restaurant still does everything they did back when you would call them on the phone, except the app helps orchestrate that. It helps you make those selections without finding the restaurant's website or pulling the restaurant's menu out of a drawer. But for that privilege, Seamless takes upward of 30% of the bill, right? For providing very little value, a little bit of convenience, they take a third of the money. And once Seamless becomes a monopoly, which they pretty much have, they use their capital to buy uh, you know, Grubhub and all of the other menu companies. If you're not on Seamless, then none of the offices are going to find you anymore because they all think, let's just go to Seamless. Now, what if the restaurants owned Seamless? Well, then that solves the whole problem, right? If the restaurants had done the very minimal investment you need, really, to make an app like that, and there's a lot of apps out there that restaurants could be using that they could just buy, you know, fee-for-service or just buy the app and then start using it, but... Seamless has already established its monopoly. So the object of the game is for companies to be able to live through the disruption and then use the digital tools instead to create platform cooperatives or things that they own. But what we're actually seeing is that digital technology is much better at disrupting things than realizing things. You know, digital technology brought us Arab Spring. It disrupted the established order, but it wasn't really good at building a new one. The same with Occupy. It was great at, at challenging Wall Street, but not really so great at organizing us after the fact, or to continue on in that effort. And the current presidential election sort of uh, shows that, that in some ways the the torch of the labor movement was passed over onto the right, which is both disturbing and and shocking at the same time. So these digital technologies, these digital disruptions, seem almost like temporary autonomous zones. They're ways for people to experience new dynamics and institutions in new ways, but they're not maybe the best place for people to organize cooperative labor solutions they may not be the best place for us to discuss and enable new working relationships new relationships between labor and production and consumers and management you know we look at things well meaning things like the ethereum project which was a, a blockchain that amounted to little more than a pyramid scheme and i know these were these were very well meaning progressives but the people who invested in that were also driven by the idea of getting in on the ground floor of the people's blockchain. And of course that failed. Because what was it really solving for? An anonymous cryptocurrency blockchain? Is that the way to forge solidarity between people? So finally, really what I'm asking is, does the bias for scale and anonymity of these net-based solutions discourage the human-to-human solidarity that we really need to challenge the status quo of neoliberalism? It's a big question, but I can't really think of someone better to, to work on it than Natalie Foster. We're Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY, Queens, and online at TeamHuman.F. So Natalie Foster, as we look at the future of work, one of the things that's, that's concerning me is that a lot of the new future of work models involve greater worker autonomy, whether that's ownership or decision-making or voting. And it, it makes me really want to ask, do people really want to participate more actively at the companies where they work. In other, in other words, isn't that in some ways, isn't that the worst of both worlds where you lose the ability to just be an infantilized worker who shows up in the morning, does what they're told and go home um, and you still have to go and work and listen to someone and have a boss. But now you're also supposed to somehow be, you know, a co-owner or a co author of this company experience. I mean, do you find people want to bear that responsibility? And in some cases, even the speculative risk involved in making decisions about the company?
0: I think that's a really good question. There's been a lot of talk through the platform cooperativism movement around this idea of building, you know, worker owned, platforms as sort of a next generation of the platform work we have today. And I think that's a really interesting insight. Are people willing to take on the downside risk of startups in addition to the you know, 8 to 12 hours a day they're working for their paycheck? you know most startups having been out here in silicon valley for 6 7 years now i know for certain most startups fail and the very few you know succeed modestly and then the tiny tiny percentage actually do very very well that's who we hear in the headlines that's who we valorize with our sort of heropreneurship but most fail and i think that's a really good question is how do we make sure that risk is built into the movements around co-ownership right now that I actually think are really exciting. I'm watching a lot of the experiments with Juno, with Josephine here in the East Bay, the, the platform for food and on, on non-professional cooks uh, who've recently rolled out a value sharing proposition for the cooks on their platform. Um, and so I think that'll be a good question. How do you make sure that people can share? And is it possible to, to share in the upside while minimizing the risk of a startup
1: with ownership models. I know it's a in some ways it kills the infantilized dream. Maybe it was hard for people to get it at the beginning or to convince people, but you know, most people have been going to work over the past decades thinking of their boss as this kind of nice daddy and the work situation as this sort of recreation of the of the nuclear family and that somehow if we just do what's expected of us it will all work out, but I suppose from you know from enron forward or before then we've we've learned that these companies and this system does not actually take care of workers you know we don't we don't uh, end up with enough to retire tire on we don't end up with a social safety net we don't end up with job security we don't end up with a pension even you know that those things go away so you know on the one hand, when I look at you know say trumpism and the rise of this uh, you know, worker discontent, a lot of it is because the system has collapsed on a certain on a certain level. It's just, it's tricky to get people, I guess, to let go of the one thing, even if it's not working, in order to jump onto this other thing. You know, so when I look at the way, uh, even when I look at peers.org, which we should talk about, you know, and the way this uh, kind of peer-to-peer new worker landscape is is pitched to America. It still feels like a kind of a lefty, progressive Bernie Sanders-ish post-Occupy kind of a thing. You know, I'm wondering if you've had success in communicating these values to you know the kinds of people who are are working at Walmart and working at factories so that they can. Uh, understand that this isn't just for a a select group of people from like Ithaca using hours and peer-to-peer currencies, but real people with real jobs.
0: Yeah. Well, I would say that over the past few years, what started as kind of an excitement around the quote-unquote sharing economy, I think has become clear that it's that's not the right way of thinking about it. And what's grown out of that is that more of the on-demand economy, which I think of as the digital labor platforms like Uber and TaskRabbit and, and so forth, some of the marketplaces like Etsy and Airbnb, that sort of thing. And I think the real questions that have started to rise are really questions around the future of work. And unfortunately, I think some of the ownership questions and the And the questions of, you know, even moving beyond currency into more of exchanging goods and services have have become less of the dominant conversation. And the dominant conversation has been simply what happens if work looks very different from a traditional nine to five job where you have an employer who's, as you said, taking care of you, your whole Uh, life and they're responsible for your benefits and protections. And then you retire at age 60 with a gold watch and you have a pension, which was really the gains that the labor movement made over the industrial revolution. And I think the question we have before us is, if work has been broken down into a number of tasks, has been fractured out, and can be tasked out differently where people are picking up pieces of pieces of a job instead of one person holding the job, then what does the social contract look like in that scenario? What responsibilities do work matching platforms have? What responsibilities do people who work in that way have? And what responsibilities does the government have? And it feels to me like we're at the beginning of the conversation around what the next social contract should look like. And I do think that is the question that people who, who are sort of across the spectrum, who work in Walmart in middle America or who are freelance consultant on the coasts all sort of intuitively get that without that stability of some sort of you know a safety net, the basic protections like a form of unemployment insurance or workers' comp or benefits like paid time off, even health insurance... And all of the new innovative benefits one could imagine for a 21st century social safety net, I think people do understand that that's, that's important to to how they're going to live.
1: Well, there's, there's a, a few things I want to try to pick up from there. First, this task rabbit, you know, Amazon Turk nightmare <laughs> that a lot of people are living in. I didn't see that coming. I saw, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, we're going to get this great peer to peer economy and everyone's just going to trade back and forth with each other, you know, with sort of the couch surfing pre Airbnb thing, which couch every oh, you can come stay at my place, and then I'll stay at yours, maybe develop some credit. So if you've had 10 people stay at your house, you can have 10 nights in Europe at someone else's house, that turns into these platforms like Airbnb, or doing favors for each other become something like TaskRabbit, or Amazon Turks. And there ends up being this weird race to the bottom once you have a giant universal internet orchestrating these things. So if, say, I want to get this interview transcribed, Mm -hmm. I can get the MP3 file and I'll look online and there's going to end up being some cheapest way to get this thing done. And it's, it's, hard for people to justify, well, why am I going to go to that more expensive one rather than this one that's going to do the whole thing for $3? I don't care. So it's some slave labor somewhere. Who who knows? It's certainly sterilized and, and distanced enough through the internet. So when you talk about a social contract, it's almost volunteering to pay more because I understand that only this amount is livable to do the task.
0: Yeah, well, first I'd say I think that the solidarity economy or the bartering economy is is still alive and well. I just don't think it gets the dominant headlines on TechCrunch, which makes perfect sense because the capital returns, as you point out, the way <laughs> all companies are judged, aren't there because it's about people actually, you know, exchanging time. I you know, I think of Yurdle, for example, the platform for free shopping, sort of the next generation of Craigslist, more people mm-hmm. are swapping free things all the time. They've created their own currency. It's it's people all over the globe. I just think that what we've seen rise are actually a very different thing, which are work matching platforms. They are labor aggregator platforms, and there's no favor being exchanged. It's simply a a new way to earn money. And I think there's upside to it. Certainly there is. People um, can be very flexible. They can fill in hours where they want to or can in their life. Like my father, who's a handyman in Colorado, he loves being his own boss, gets work the traditional way off of word of mouth, chamber of commerce type things. But he also uses Thumbtack, one of the labor matching platforms for, for people who are in the handyman line of business. And so he's sort of this you know hybrid model. The downside is that, well, there's there's a bunch of downsides, partly because work all of our constructs around work and our safety net and our protections and our tax code were built for people who have traditional jobs, who have a W-2 form of employment. And anything anyone working outside of that has nothing. We have an all or nothing social safety net. It's not like if you do 12 hours of work, you get 12 hours worth of protections. You actually just get zero. And so I think we have two choices. One is we try and say, look, all of this is not good work. So therefore we want to fight it all and just try and make sure everybody has a traditional job. Or two, we can say technology has moved in. It has unbundled work in a way that we're just seeing the beginnings of. You know, there are platforms, we think of platforms as, you know, Uber drivers and task rabbiters, which are primarily low wage work. But platform work is moving into doctors and nurses, uh, real estate agents, a number of white collar jobs. And as those jobs start to unbundle too, I think we can say, okay, if that's the way work's going to look, what sorts of protections do we need to build to support people who work in that way? What does the future of worker voice or the labor movement look like in a very, very different workforce? Uh, what does social policy look like? What does ownership look like? What does you know, minimum wage look like if people aren't working hourly wages,
1: et cetera? And yeah, and what does it look like? I mean, right now it feels – the the companies making making these platforms are looking at human beings in terms of their utility value. So the same way that they'll use a platform to organize trucks to make sure that there's a truck in the right place at the right time for the cheapest amount of money to get this to there, they're going to look at humans. How do we get a nurse in the right place at the right time or a doctor in the right place at the right time? And uh, if the if the human being, if the worker is looked at solely in terms of how do we maximize their utility value while minimizing the cost, we end up losing all of the stuff that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So how do we reprioritize some of the things that the workers need as opposed to just the things that the uh, owners of the platforms need? I think that is really
0: one of the most important questions facing us right now. A couple of the models uh, I'm looking at for inspiration are in New York. There's something called the Black Car Fund. And so every ride in a black car or an Uber or a Lyft in New York is assessed a tax uh, to 2.5%. People don't even know they're paying it. It goes into the Black Car Fund, which is sort of third-party administrator of workers' comp for drivers in New York. And so the the fund administers this basic protection that is just built in to traditional employment in America, to W-2 employment in America, and administers it to these independent contractors if something goes awry. There could be something in that model where you have a platform that is paying in to some sort of worker voice organization perhaps the future of a labor movement, uh, perhaps a guild, but some organization representing the workers who then administers the benefits and protections to folks, and then also serves as a form of worker voice in that
1: scenario. And then to do that, how does that happen? Is it it, because Uber wouldn't want that to be there, right? So is it something that Mayor de Blasio in New York just insists on or they make a law? How does something like that come to be?
0: Well, I think that's a good question. I mean, you know, the Treaty of Detroit, which created the modern American social contract that employers are responsible for benefits and protections and responsible for administering them, you know, was actually created by the big three auto workers and and the labor unions at the time. And the labor unions had significant power at that time and were able to craft sort of a win-win scenario where uh, workers were taken care of. And in exchange, workers worked really hard for these companies. And so, you know, I think one of the questions today is what's sort of the treaty of Detroit today? Like, who are the players who can sit down and say, here's what we'll give you in exchange, this is what we want. And I think we're starting to see some of it. So interestingly, in New York also, The machinists who've long represented the black car drivers in New York created an independent driver's guild for Uber drivers. Uber, in a very interesting turn of events, recognized that guild last year. And the idea Mm. is that Uber and the guild will, will together work on a set of things. Uber will pay the guild and the guild will administer benefits and protections for Uber drivers. Now, there's a lot to be worked out but that kind of model is, I think, a really interesting one.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, and then how did uh the creation of peers.org was also meant to uh fulfill some of this purpose and you know and create a, at least a platform for solidarity between between workers of different kinds. I mean, how how was that conceived and how do you how do you find it's it's working now?
0: Yeah, well, we launched Peers and it feels like in a different universe, mm. <laughs> like four years ago, three and a half years ago. Um, to support people who worked in the then called sharing economy. And frankly, I think then we were much more focused on stuff like boats and bicycles and you right. know rooms on Airbnb or couch surfing. And we learned a lot. I think our members engaged in a bunch of different regulatory questions around the country. But for me, the questions that became much more important were the questions around work, and less kind of the local regulation, although I think that's still really interesting. Peers then left the advocacy space and turned into a company that supported people who work in this space in the in the platform space uh, through products. And Shelby Clark, who um, founded Relay Rides, now Turo came in and led that pivot, and they've really focused on portable benefits. How do you create a portable, prorated, and universal social safety net? and one of the things they've come to realize is until there's a law passed sort of to your point like who makes this happen it will be very hard to do because if it's an elective then low wage workers can't afford it or don't want to afford it if you have the choice of bringing an extra dollar home an hour or saving for something in the future that may or may not happen to you you know you choose the extra dollar an hour and so how do we how do we create new laws that support these workers. And I think that's really the the task for twenty seventeen is how do we how do we get a couple of prototypes of these laws on the books in
1: different states that'll eventually inform a federal response. It's funny, I, I keep thinking about whether uh, whether some not all but, but some of the techno utopians are correct in that, you know, machines and robots and automation are going to replace 10, 20, 30, 40% Of the jobs that we have. And if that's true, if we actually just don't need as many people working, then what happens to jobs? In other words, can, can work disconnect itself entirely from jobs so that we just do the work that needs to be done, but people don't have to have jobs in order for that to happen?
0: yeah I think this is the you know this is the great speculation of our time is will there be more work in the future? Certainly, you know, for example, when we passed the Affordable Care Act six years ago, I was running the president's digital team at the time, and it's something I'm most proud of in my career, and I think it relates directly to what I spend time thinking about today because the future of work is certainly the ability for people to take their health insurance as an example with them wherever they go, which is something the Affordable Care Act offers. the one thing in our traditional social safety net that that can be portables is health insurance. But when we pass that the idea of Uber driving was definitely not on anyone's radar screen because Uber didn't exist. And just mm. in the short lifetime of that policy you've seen entirely new markets be created and explode and I that just reminds me that of course people will create new markets and new work. I don't think that's a question. The question in my mind is, are they good jobs? And history in America has shown us they will not be, right? We have become a low-wage nation. We have become a nation of retail and service sector jobs. That is the vast majority of jobs we've added over the last several decades, jobs that pay minimum wage and have the very, very barest of requirements built into the, the protections level and you know jobs that use algorithmic scheduling and schedule you right at 29 hours so they don't actually have to pay your health insurance and and don't have any mind for when you you can actually be at work they tell you when you need to be at work if you want to keep that job so i think that is the thing i worry most about and in that scenario is what's prompted me to to think more about something like the universal basic income where we would Figure out a way to just give everyone cash for being alive as sort of a floor from which they start their own work lives and personal lives. There's just a basic security built in that people can count on each month they know is coming and can then make their own choices of how they want to spend their time and what work they want to do
1: from there. Right. So they get the basic. And then if they want to get iPhones and video games, they've got to compete in, you know, in God's good market economy for uh, (laughs) for those for those. (laughs) But at least, you know, their their food and housing and those sorts of things are taken care of. I mean, it's funny. I, I, uh, you know, was talking to Esteban Kelly and some of the people in the, the sort of the worker cooperative uh side of things and um they're now they're actually pushing back against guaranteed minimum income because they're seeing it as uh really just a way to create more consumption dollars for people that it all ends up you know in the same in the same corporate hands but you know as a as a minimum safety net or as a just a right to survive you know <laughs> you have the right to survive even if you don't work um but if you want to get anything nice you should work you know, it seems to be a sign of a, of a higher functioning society, not a, not a worse or one.
0: Well, I think their criticism or what I perceive to be their criticism is probably right in that the universal basic income, I don't think solves the problems alone. I think with it, we need, we still have to figure out, you know, I, I imagine it being part of the future of the social contract. Not only would you have portable benefits and protections, but frankly, you'd have portable income that wherever you go, whatever you do, you have a basic floor created. And that there are still questions of what the future of worker voice looks like in that scenario and how we deal with housing in a lot of the major metropolitan areas, certainly the coast, certainly the Bay Area where I live, cost controls, that kind of thing. So there's still much work to be done on all fronts, but it feels to me like in a time of great. Productivity and growth that promises to be even greater with AI and automation that everyone should should be able to um, participate in that great growth and that's certainly not the case in the way the economy is set up today, totally based on you know wages from
1: work that is increasingly minimum wage work. Right. I think a large part of that is because particularly in the startup and tech universe, they're not looking for long-term sustainable business strategies. They're essentially finance schemes, You know, companies that exist to sell their shares to new rounds of investors. So if you're thinking of your company like that, rather than as some kind of a family business that you want to survive decades or even centuries, then you're going to look at your labor force more as a resource from which to extract value rather than a a community to uh, to sustain you know or an expertise to grow or a company culture to nurture you know so a, a lot of it I, I feel like has to do with teaching businesses how to value themselves rather than just to sell themselves.
0: yeah, well said. One of the projects I'm watching I'm interested in is a long term stock mm-hmm. exchange um also coming out of silicon valley and you know can some like something like that uh actually shift some of that dynamic i think there's also a ton of conversation around conscious capitalism and how we you know build in different tax incentives and rethink um capitalism to to do basically what you're saying uh and so i think the the real question is what will be the inflection point for some of these changes that we know you know need to happen and my concern is that They'll happen in a moment of great crisis. And in a moment of crisis, the people at the bottom are the ones who are really significantly hurt. Everyone else figures out how to survive or sort of makes it through. Couldn't we figure out how to do this in a way that is understanding great shifts have always come with great turmoil? And so it's in everyone's best interest to, you know figure out what this looks like before it it gets to you would think you
1: know it's like how can we cushion it this time so that the shocks are experienced a little bit less violently but what i see Mm -hmm. instead particularly from you know the wealthy executives of companies is you know they're looking at how can they insulate themselves better from the coming shock rather than how can they reduce the shock itself yeah
0: i think that's right well let me just ask you a quick question What are, I think you're totally right. And you play this really important prophetic role in reminding us all, what are some of the bright spots you see? Are there any companies you see that are poised to do well, but also, you know, do good by their,
1: by the people who work for them or on their their I mean, it's funny. I was going to ask you, uh, I was going to ask you the same (laughs) thing. I mean, I'm hopeful about the companies that are coming like out of Inspiral, Mm -hmm. uh, you know they whether it's Lumio or or any of the others they're they're kind of small enough to be uh, worker owned and 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 worker administrated. I'm generally enthusiastic by the small local businesses I see more than these sort of giant generic platforms. I'm coming to believe that these the giant internet based platforms are more an artifact of industrial age thinking, of this sort of globalist, one company, one meta platform to solve all these problems. And for most work, except maybe the, you know, assembly of, a, of an iPhone on a giant global supply chain, they don't seem necessary. They don't seem even more efficient than community farming or community restaurants. You know, we don't need to be using seamless as our discovery platform for restaurants that are within a quarter mile of our home or office. You know, <laughs> there seems to be, you know, the real world is so much such a better interface for finding out about what's actually around you than, uh, than any net. So I'm encouraged when I see the, there's a local family owned pizza restaurant in, in my town. That's, giving workers ownership of the company, or just treating people properly. I'm interested in companies that stay private and don't go public. I like uh, Pando Daily. is a uh, It's actually a tech news site, but it's refused to take outside investment. It's just doing what's called bootstrapping, which shouldn't, shouldn't sound so magical. It's really just uh, using your profits to invest in the company, rather than getting outside money and having to supply hundred 100X, 100x returns. So uh, you know, I see it. I see it around, but in some ways, it's a matter of changing what the definition of success is. You know, I've got I'm teaching now. You know, City College, Queens College in New York, and so many kids are wanting to have meetings with me about, you know, what kind of job should I be preparing for? What kind of job am I going to get? I mean, they're very cooperative. They want to know what do I have to do in this class to get the grade that's going to get me the job, and. I want to tell them in the first or second class, there's no job out there for you. (laughs) There is no job. And whatever you're learning today for the job of today isn't going to be the skill you need for the job of tomorrow anyway. You know, so I look at all of these, you know, university industry partnerships, you know, where CEOs come and tell schools what skills they need their college students to have so they can get jobs in their company. Um, You know, I want to, I want to you know, scream when I hear that stuff because there is no job. <laughs> you know, I guess what I'd rather do is see what kind of job can you come up with? What kind mm. of company can you make? Yeah. You know, and that that's what gets exciting. You I know, think- and to kids that, you know. Yeah, not. I totally
0: agree. I think that is what gets really exciting. And you know, in order to do that, to launch something, it takes risk. It's it's risky, so it usually takes some sort of capital, like or the ability to know you can fall back on something that, uh, like a lot of entrepreneurs out here in Silicon Valley have. Uh, you know, they'll do a friends and family round, they'll raise the money. They 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 generally know that if this thing doesn't work out, they aren't going to be bankrupt or out on the street. And so it's one of the reasons I'm I'm actually really interested in the idea of what would happen if we gave everyone money. It feels like it could function like the ultimate sort of seed capital where you could imagine people able to take on entrepreneurial risks more easily if they knew they had sort of the basic piece. I think it could also in that way serve as a a universal strike fund, meaning if I'm in a job I don't like, then I can much more easily walk off the job to find something I do like if I know that there's something basic coming in. So it's really inspiring to imagine what people, you know, would do
1: with basic security. I know. And, you know, and the kinds of questions that do come up, which is like, well, if everyone had basic security, then who are we going to find to do those really, really awful jobs that nobody wants? And well, the thing is, Maybe there shouldn't be those jobs that nobody wants. So if there's a job that somebody that has to literally, you know, dig in human poop or, you know, do something that's really just an inhuman job, then maybe we need to figure out a more humane way of, uh, <laughs> of getting that work done.
0: Right. Or maybe wages just need to rise. I mean, particularly right. particularly in the work that automation I don't think will touch, like the care industry you know, I think mm-hmm. we will have a greater need for more and more people who take care of elderly folks as they age, who take care of babies. And that is the kind of work where I think wages will have to rise in order for people to do it. You know, it's it's one thing for you to be able to take care of your own mom, but it's another thing for someone else to do it. And it's I think that will have to happen in order to for more people
1: to, to do that work. Yeah, totally. I mean, I guess finally, kind of what I want to ask you about, because this is team human, is uh, how do you see so for, how do you see people forging solidarity in the digital media environment? You know, I understand how to forge solidarity in real life. You know I go to a rally or I go to work and I look to my left and look to my right and I see these other people. Solidarity online seems to be so treacherous. People, you know, forge solidarity on on really sketchy ideas. They get isolated in these extremist pockets. Where have you seen it, especially as someone who organized, you know, a, a support for various White House policies online and in a way that worked? I mean, things actually got, uh, a few of them anyway, got passed because <laughs> of public pressure. I mean, how do you forge solidarity in in a digital space? Well, I think there's a number of groups who've sprung up in the last few
0: years in sort of a digital first way of organizing themselves. They don't have bricks and mortar offices. They are primarily based on membership via email address. Um, You know, I think of Color of Change, who's representing Black Americans and are doing amazing work in this election right now um, around voting while Black, their campaign campaign uh, I think of Ultraviolet, an organization that sprung up recently as sort of a 21st century women's movement that have done really interesting work around the Brock Turner case coming out of Stanford. You know, I think of uh, even the what's happening right now on the ground, uh, a stop where the Native American reservation is, is um, pushing back against the pipeline going through their land. And, you know, people are showing up there in person, but more and more, like, tens of thousands of people are, are are standing with them in solidarity digitally. They're checking in at Standing Rock Reservation online, you know, using Facebook as a way to sort of confuse the surveillance that's happening there. So I think there are a number of places where solidarity is showing up and very specifically around the future of work. i I am inspired by coworker.org, a platform that launched a few years ago um, using the change.org technology. They noticed that people were using petitions in their own workplace and they decided to make an instance of distributed campaigning specifically for the workplace and specifically for workplaces where there were, of course, no you know organization, no union, no collective action. And uh, have been able to do that. They've won a number of campaigns, um, including one at Starbucks where a barista started one campaign saying, hey, I'd like to be able to show my tattoos at work, which went viral Uh among baristas all over the country. And uh, they won that campaign and they moved on to other things like wages and benefits. But they're now in touch in a way they weren't before. Before they were just sort of a disaggregated group of people. And now there's 60,000 of them able to communicate over email, text message, and Facebook. So is that the beginning of what Worker Voice will look like in the next economy? I I like to hope that it's it's
1: some version of it. I'm seeing some mutterings from the startup community about thinking about, platform co-ops or, or, you know, respecting workers, you know, you see little bits out of Union Square Ventures, then a little bit out of the Flatiron Partners. I mean, do you feel like these these folks are thinking about this kind of stuff in a legitimate way? Uh, I mean, do you see answers coming from them or or even genuine efforts to involve workers in a in a more substantial way? Or do you feel it's more, you know, lip service to a growing discontent with the way the startup scene uh, extracts money and value from people and places?
0: Well, I think there are a small number of people within the tech community who are really focused on this. And I think their ideas are starting to gain some traction. Um, And I think those ideas are going to be best informed when people who come out of the labor movement and who are worker advocates sit together with technologists and together they write some of the new rules of work. You know, one of the things that became true is when technologists sat down to create some of the platforms that I think a lot about, they thought they were sort of creating terms of service. Here's what you do on one side of the marketplace when you are working, here's what you do on the other side of the marketplace as a customer. And actually they were writing the new work contract and that just wasn't mm. clear when they, when they first started. And I think it it's really important to have groups like the national domestic workers Alliance and their good work code working closely with a bunch of companies on what it would look like to, you know, do this right. Um, and that's where I think that we're going to have the greatest strength. Right. Well,
1: I just want to thank you so much for for the work you're doing, the questions you're looking at and the uh, I mean the positive attitude, you know, that sort of hopeful and and not I wouldn't even say optimistic, but just purely um hopeful and determined work you bring to to thinking about these about these challenges rather than, you know, the desperation that so many so many of us are thinking about when we look forward. I feel like you see you see a way forward where people can, you know, where work will be more about accomplishing stuff than just justifying one's participation in the spoils of capitalism.
0: Hmm. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. And thank you so much for, I think, the well-deserved criticism that you, um, and thought-provoking criticism that you put forward um, in this industry. I think people take note. And I think that's what opens up space for me to do my work. So uh, I think it's important.
1: Well, we'll continue to play together on Team Human then for, uh, for, the, <laughs> for the good of all. <laughs> Thanks, Douglas. Thanks for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolomé. Thanks to all of our new listeners who have emailed, tweeted, and supported Team Human with donations through the website. Special thanks to Meetup for their underwriting support. Start your own Team Human meetup at meetup.com. Thanks to Aaron Dignan at theready.com. Our friends at Zago designed our logo and supported Team Human with an underwriting donation. And special thanks to Fugazi and Mike Watt for sharing the music you heard on today's show. My name is Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peace.